Hello, and welcome back to Fantastic Voyage, a podcast about David Bowie. I am your co-host, Jesse. And I am your co-host, John. How are you doing today, John? I'm not doing too bad, thank you for asking. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing good, and I'm feeling great that we're in the same room uh, doing our first live episode. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. This is exciting. No more Zoom calls, uh, hopefully, for the foreseeable future anyway, as we continue to record uh, our episodes. Today we're talking about the 1970 album, The Man Who Sold the World, released on Mercury Records. The third record by David Bowie, um, and the first one not called David Bowie. Um, so that's kind of cool. I guess it still kind of is a self-titled album, though, isn't it? Because The Man Who Sold the World is, that's him, right? Right, it's I presumably. Oddly, a, yeah. oddly still a self-titled album, but... <laughs> yeah, officially not called David Bowie. Thank God. Yeah, I was um, getting sick of that. Yeah. yeah it could have been David Bowie 3. Uh, it kind of would have matched Zeppelin 3, too, which is kind of... Yeah, Zeppelin 2, uh, the, the influence of a record like that definitely pops up on this album, or just Led Zeppelin in general. Right. Uh, did Zeppelin 3 come out... Well, the same year as this, right? I'm not the, sure which one came out first. They may have been recording around the same time. Yeah, they recorded this album in April 1970, Zeppelin 3. I'm, I'm guessing that didn't come out. It was October 1970 is when Zeppelin 3 came out. So I think it's fitting to start this episode off talking about Mick Ronson, uh, who emerged on the scene shortly before the recording of this album. Uh, some of the songs, or at least one, had definitely been written already. Um... The the impact that he's going to make on Bowie's career over the next four years is it's immeasurable. Um, so at the time, uh, I guess it was late 69, early 70, Bowie was kind of struggling to maybe keep up with some of the heavier uh, British acts at the time. Uh, bands like, like Zeppelin, uh, Black Sabbath, The Who, Cream, uh, just to name a few. Uh, th they had a really, really heavy blues-driven sound, and they were kind of dominating. Uh, I'm not sure if they were dominating the charts or not, but they were definitely dominating uh, the rock scene. Yeah, the Beatles, that the, the hippie era, that that's ended. We kind of touched on that on the last episode, right. but yeah, rock is in a yeah definitely more of a harder place than it was, you know, just a, a year ago. So Bowie, uh, acting quickly, uh, he formed a band. Uh, called maybe informally called the hype uh it started off with visconti on bass and john cambridge on drums uh who both were on the space oddity album but cambridge recommended uh his old rats friend from hull uh mick ronson to join as the lead guitarist um he was famously painting ronson was painting a rugby field or a soccer field or something in hull and uh, cambridge drove up and asked him to join the band and I think it was like two days later, he was playing a live BBC session with Bowie uh, and The Hype. I was with The Circle. And it's it's really neat just to kind of hear that. It's been released on, I think, the BBC. It's been released on With The Circle, mm -hmm. uh, the, the box set. It's really neat to hear him kind of finding his voice and figuring out where he fits in the band on that recording. Uh, but yeah, so they, they kind of just took off from there uh, with Ronson uh, at lead guitar. He was... Uh, he was more than just the kind of guitar hero that a lot of these bands or a lot of artists in the early 70s kind of latched on to. Um, yeah, he was an absolutely stunning guitarist, but he 
he did a lot more. He wrote, he, he knew how to read and write music, first of all, played piano, uh, he could write vocal harmonies. And then despite having very little, if any, experience uh, in writing arrangements, he took that on once Visconti left the group. And he was just incredible at it. Like, absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote the string arrangements for, I guess it would have been all three, like Hunky Dory, Ziggy, and Aladdin Sane. There weren't as many strings on Aladdin Sane, but he did do arranging on that album, too. There's some great arrangements in there, too. Like, I mean, Five Years is one of them. Uh, and there's there's several others. But yeah, he's a virtuoso at arranging, to say the least. Yeah. Um, possibly my favorite collaborator of Bowie's. Um, I, I'm a huge guitar guy, so... Ron and Ronson was one of the reasons why I got into guitar. Yeah, he's... Uh, I, I can't overstate how important he was to Bowie's career, um, especially with the departure of Visconti after this album, which maybe we'll get into a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, anything you want to add on Ronson? I feel like I've just, like, eulogized him a little <laughs> bit. I mean, he did leave us pretty early, uh, in the early early 90s or mid-90s, like 93 or 94. Mm -hmm. Um he uh, succumbed to liver cancer as well, um, same as Bowie. Uh, but yeah, kind of sad that he left us pretty early, but that's my Ronson eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his presence on this record is definitely felt. And I mean, Mick Wayne was a fine guitarist. He's the guitarist from the last record, Space Oddity. But Ronson had, he had grit and he had raunchiness. There's a lot more character to his playing style. It can be very sexual, it really was just a perfect match for the glam direction Bowie was heading down. And Ronson also kind of took over the musical direction of the backing band, too, didn't he? Like like you just alluded to, he, he became yeah. a, an arranger, and he was the leading force in drummer John Cambridge being sacked. Cambridge, Ironic, since he, he was the one who went, who drove out to find him. Drove all the way out to find him, only to be sacked of, what, about a couple months later. Yeah. He was supposedly struggling uh, during a certain part of the Superman. You can actually hear... There's there's a BBC version that Cambridge drums on of the Superman. You can kind of hear the drums are a bit sloppy, but... Legend has it, Cambridge actually overheard Angie telling David to get on with firing him already uh, over in a different room, and that shortly after that, David told him they were going to replace him with a drummer who could help with the arrangements. They wanted an, an arrangement virtuoso, which... I might believe that if, I don't know, Mick Ronson wasn't already there. Yeah. It kind of just sounds like a more polite way of saying you're not good enough. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, he, he's replaced by Woody Woodmansey, a, a much more advanced drummer. He, he didn't struggle with any of the odd time signatures, and, and he was Ronson's guy. They, they knew each other quite well. Woody played in a, a few groups in the 60s. One was the Mutations, uh, which is just a fantastic group name, I might add. I mean, we, have, yeah, we, might, have to, we yeah. might have to steal that for our own band, but... <laughs> the group he played in that caught Ronson's attention uh, in the mid-60s were the Roadrunners. Ronson noticed Woody while they shared a bill or something. Ronson would have been with the Rats at the time, who, as you mentioned, John Cambridge was drumming for. But Cambridge had to leave the group, and so they needed a new drummer, and uh, Ronson and the Rats drove all the way from Hull to find Woody and offered him the vacancy. And, yeah, Woody... I mean, I'm not sure how much, as you kind of said, they, they were looking he claimed they were looking for a guy to help arrange as well. Um, maybe he didn't know what Ronson was capable of yet. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he may have, but um, I mean, I, I've read Woody's book. It's called like my, I forget what it's called. Spider from Mars or something. My life with Bowie or touring with Bowie, playing with Bowie. Um, he does, I mean, he toots his own horn quite a bit, but he does 
speak about, you know, he, he was very aware of what was going on with, with the arrangements and with like, he worked pretty closely with, uh, with, well, Trevor Boulder, Tony Visconti and Mick Ronson with kind of coming up with what we're going to do to make this sound. And so, yeah, so one thing leads to another and, I think the Rats, did they kind of disband or something? or Well, half their band had left and gone to play with Bowie and then got sacked by <laughs> Bowie, so I guess they, they were kind of just done. So, yeah, they he was working some kind of uh, a job, and he, he got a phone call saying hey, uh, from Bowie himself saying, hey, you know, my, my buddy Mick uh, really speaks highly of you, and would you like to join my group? And he, he agreed, uh, kind of a bit reluctantly, because as you mentioned the late 60s were being dominated by, you know, the, the harder rock stuff, the bluesier stuff. And, you know, he, he knew of Bowie, but Bowie was kind of viewed as like this novelty act because the only song that he had that was successful was Space Oddity. And right. his yeah. first record was kind of a, you know, a bit of a joke. So he was a, a little bit reluctant at first, but ultimately decided to, to join the group. And, you know, thank God, because he, he's amazing on this record. And, and then we also have the producer, Tony Visconti on bass, who is classically trained. You know, he studied Beethoven and all that, and right. supposedly, supposedly Beethoven has all the best bass parts of all those old guys. I don't know anything about them, but... And, and Ronson told him to play, like, Jack Bruce from Cream, and he was able to kind of pick up on that very easily. And, yeah, the, the just the back... Like, those guys, all those guys we mentioned, I mean, they really bring this album to life, don't they? I mean, the, the band on this album, I feel like you have to start there right. when you talk about the man who sold the world. It's just how great they are. And I think, uh, I think he even used or Visconti even used a short-scale bass like Bruce to kind of get that bit more of a thwangy kind of sound. Um, it Yeah, it's the bass is incredible on this album. They, they sound like a tight band, despite being like a baby band. They had just been together for a couple of months mm-hmm. before recording this album, or if that. And they sound like a band that had been playing together for since they were kids, because mm-hmm. th- they're super, super tight. Um, and... So, yeah, Bowie's got his ducks in a row now um, heading into the studio. They also hired Ralph Mace, uh, an older guy. I think he was Mm -hmm. 40 or in his early 40s to play synthesizer on it. Uh, I know that there was a lower budget for this album, uh, maybe even lower than the one for Space Oddity. I'm not sure, but I I know they were kind of trying to save some money. They were, I think I read somewhere that Visconti, Visconti may have said that they were kind of driving back and forth between Trident and maybe another studio and they were recording from like one in the morning to seven in the morning because they that's what the time slots that they had budgeted for they was a kind, of, kind of like the midnight sessions on weekends and stuff right, right? and yeah and they were they were broke and they were all kind of living together at Haddon Hall right that uh that, yeah. Edwa- that Edwardian mansion in, in Beckenham that had been converted to flats Visconti rented the room right next to Bowie and Bowie had a room and I think the rest of the guys were like sleeping on mattresses on the floor or yeah, something, and they could barely. Ronson, Ronson slept. Ronson and Woody slept in a hallway. Yeah, they said it was kind of like Dracula's castle. The way that he <laughs> had it, like the way that Bowie had kind of dressed it up, and they built a studio there, so they had a jam space. So that, that that's probably how they got so tight. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so so Ralph Mace was brought on to play uh, synthesizer on it. So they had a Moog synthesizer that is rumored to have been borrowed from George Harrison. I, oh, wow. So, like, that one that, like, is on Abbey Road, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Because that, that's when he was using it on Because and, and a right. couple other songs. I, now Maxwell not, Silver Hammer. I read that on Wikipedia. So, <laughs> I'm a librarian. Uh, I'm a high school librarian who teaches high school kids how to properly find information online. So, I, I, I feel bad saying that I 
found this on Wikipedia. I, I didn't look into it. I actually just read that today. I was just glancing through. And yeah, so that's that may or may not be true. Anyway, he does play uh, Moog synth on it, which obviously saves costs instead of bringing in an orchestra to, to play the string parts. Mm-hmm. It's just one guy on keys. Uh, but it's it's really cool to think of this album as like, it's a synth album. It doesn't really yeah. feel like one, but it, it totally is. Um, yeah, so I think maybe, should we get into the first... first song on the man who sold the world is the width of a circle kind of a slow uh intro to the album sounds like it's going to be a slow song perhaps um but maybe that feedback that starts it that really starts it off is a hint that this is not going to be a slow song and this is not going to be a slow album uh it it picks up right away i I really like how bowie's uh acoustic comes in after, uh, I'm not sure if it's maybe 8 or 16 bars, it, it comes in and kind of adds a bit of depth or a bit of density and just follows that lead line mm-hmm. that Ronson's playing and then it, it just kicks off and it's it's a, it's a rocker. Well, we talked about how the last record was maybe a, a coming out party for David lyrically. Mm-hmm. This album to me, and, and this song specifically, it has to be considered his coming out party as an arranger or, or as a composer who surrounds himself with great arrangers because this song is like, I mean, it's borderline prog, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's it is. very grand in structure. It has several different stanzas that are performed in different tempos. Compositionally, it's a roller coaster. And it still very much is another type of coming out party for him as a lyricist. His lyrics and imagery are just taken on more of a dark and metaphorical form. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one that, you know, I kind of started studying the lyrics a bit more just as I've been listening to this album the last two weeks. This song demands it. Yeah. It's because I, I, it's, I couldn't stop listening to it for the, for the musical aspect of it, so eventually you start to kind of pick up on what he's saying, and it's... Yeah, it's... <laughs> I, well, what I, is he saying? <laughs> well, I'm... I, I don't know if, if people really pay attention to lyrics very much because this song could have been like banned at, at the time in 1970 if, if they would have understood the, the metaphors that he was kind of getting into, specifically on the second half, like the kind of boogie part. The triple time kind of part yeah. there, yeah. Um, if that, this album had more traction, I think it would have been controversial, but it just didn't really do too well, I right. think, to, for people to make a, a stink. Yeah. Um, Ronson and Visconti were the ones that insisted that they should keep the track going after... Uh, and so, you know, how it kind of goes into the, the intro again. They, they play that riff. Everything yeah. kind of slows down. It gets into that riff. That's, you know, that's my favorite part of the song is when... absolutely love that transition and then it kind of gets a bit spacier and then it goes into this like boogie i don't even know what the time signature is on that it's it's different faster yeah it's 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 a really really cool part and kind of funny well that's the part that i mean well what's even going on i mean david has a a sexual encounter in the depths of hell (laughs) with With a supernatural male figure uh, god maybe well it's assumed to be either god or the devil but Given just how dark and heavy the tone of this record is, uh, both lyrically and instrumentally, I have a really hard time believing it's anyone but the devil. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I I don't really know what to make of the lyrics. I, I'm not. We kind of touched on it last episode. I'm not. If I don't like putting too much effort trying to figure out what it is, I mean, I, I've done that with Dylan quite a bit. Um, but yeah, this one, it's just, it's a fun track. Um, but what really grabs me is the, is, is the, the guitar work on it. Uh, Ronson is just absolutely incredible. I, I'm, I'm not a huge, like Les Paul guy. Uh, I'm, I tend to be kind of like a strat, like a Fender sound kind of, that's my favorite sound, um, in terms of guitar tones and stuff like that. Not that I don't like humbucking Les Pauls and stuff, but if I were to say to somebody, uh, this is what a Les Paul sounds like, I would play them this song. Uh, it's just, it just rocks. Um, there's a lot of, I think that this was maybe mic'd just in the room because there's a lot of bleed on it, which is very reminiscent of John Mayall's Blues Breakers uh, with Eric Clapton just plugging into a Marshall amp, turning it up and just blowing the room away. It just gives it it's such a big honking sound, kind of raw sounding. Uh yeah, it's it, this is one of my favorite rocking Bowie songs. I also love that there's some personal connections to to Bowie's personal life on this song. In in 1993, Bowie was retelling a story of his half brother Terry's seizures and one particular episode that he had witnessed. What he says is that he collapsed on the ground and he said the ground was opening up and there was fire and stuff pouring out of the pavement and I could almost see it for him because he was explaining it so articulately. That specific memory surfaces in that second stanza of the song where he's having that sexual encounter with the supernatural figure. He struck the ground, a cavern appeared, and I smelt the burning pit of fear. That's almost word for word what he, how he was explaining that 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 thing that Terry was, was explaining right. to him. I think it's very important to note that Terry's illness was very much on David's mind during the recording of this record. Terry was hanging out with David at Haddon Hall very frequently during this period, and by all accounts, David was very worried that he may wind up with the same sort of schizophrenic experiences. Yeah. It happened to my brother. It could just as easily happen to me. Happened to his mom, too, the, the mom that they shared. And like, two, two aunts or something on his side, right. too. So, you know, that, that fear and, and that paranoia, it, it comes out in full force, and it's scattered all over this record. I wonder if that's the episode that he had at the Cream concert. Yeah, Bowie took him to, to go see them, and he, in he the middle of the show, kind of, out a yeah. Little bit, yeah. And it sounds like an experience, like, were, or were they maybe just hanging out with John and George's dentist? The Dr. Fire? Robert, or? Uh, yeah, with the, anyway. <laughs> What's really interesting uh, to me about this song is that it sounds nothing like Bowie. You know, it sounds more like Black Sabbath or Zeppelin or Cream or, you know, that gang of, of yeah. bands that you mentioned, yeah. at least instrumentally. But, you know, the the entire song, at least what it's about lyrically, it's about, you know, like the end of times and gay sex, and it has references to German philosophy, uh, references to Eastern spiritualism, and it has a bit of an ambiguous meaning. You know, people aren't sure if it's about God or the devil. So it's still a very identifiably Bowie song. You know, only Bowie would write a song with all of these references mixed together. But it still somehow doesn't sound like anything else he's ever done, and that that is just truly incredible to me. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this is again a as soon as you put this album on, you're like, oh, okay, it's a new Bowie, mm -hmm. yet again. Um, 
yeah, I've, I've got nothing else to say about this one other than uh, it's it's great. Yeah. So uh, moving on to another great song, uh, All the Mad Men. Um, now, maybe now is the time to talk about working titles on things. I, I read Summer Visconti said that the working title to this one was The Man Who Sold the World. Um, but then I also heard from someone else that uh, the working title for Savior Machine was The Man Who Sold the World. And there was, a, like, the whole second half of this album had different working titles that popped up on demos later under different names. Uh, but it's interesting that he was thinking the man who sold the world throughout writing this entire album, and he didn't really get to actually penning that song until the final hour of uh, of mixing, actually, this album, which we'll get to when we get to that song. Um, but yeah, it, it's just kind of interesting that he started this song with that title if that's true there's a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, conflicting stories um but yeah this one is another one uh heavily influenced by his brother terry um mm -hmm. being institutionalized um and i think the the front cover maybe is the <laughs> a picture of this song i always kind of thought or at least which the, which cover? I yeah, well, <laughs> definitely I'm guessing not, the cartoon. Definitely one? not the flicking uh, one. I mean, it could be, but no, yeah, the the cartoon one. Okay, which is, yeah. th that's the first copy that I ever owned of this one was the cartoon cover, and I always kind of just thought that that was a picture of all the Mad Men. Um, I think that that the wall, the gray walls or something, was literally like the the hospital that that Terry was at. Uh, yeah, where to start with this one? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I, oh, there's a lot to say. Uh, well, I guess we'll just, I'll, I'll start with I mean, maybe a bit more of how it sounds. Uh, we talk lots about, or at least I have talked a lot about Bowie struggling to, to find an identity up until this point in his career. He started out imitating the Rolling Stones when he was doing his British R&B thing. Then he copied Anthony, Anthony Newley on his first record. And after that, he would do sort of an Elvis thing at times, or even Bob Dylan, and he, he went through a bit of a hippie phase. But he really finds his voice on this record. And I think that day after day, it's Ziggy they now. send my friends away. No, that, yeah, exactly. That vocal yeah. line is telling me, like, okay, th this is Bowie now. I hear Bowie he's in here. that passage. Yeah, he's he, arrived. He's found his own voice, and he's made, you know, I guess sort of like that final evolutionary step towards the, the David Bowie we all know and love. Yeah, very, uh, it's, it's such a unique voice. It's, it's very English. Uh, but not over the top, uh, maybe at times. But yeah, it's I, I, it's one of the reasons why he's so great is he's just such an amazing vocalist. Um, and this is, you know, this is a perfect example of it. Um, I like the, the lyrics to this are just incredible. Um, the, the one that really stands out is the he's he's ripping off uh, "You Got to Hide Your Love Away." Here I stand, hand in hand, yeah. or here I stand, head in hand, turn my face to the wall. Instead, it's here I stand, foot in hand, talking to my wall. That's just, like, that fits this song, uh, definitely. Um, yeah, it's another weird time signature. This one's in 6-8 time, which is another kind of waltzy. Um, it's a little bit different than 3-4, than um, but it's it's got a similar kind of feel to it. And he, he uses it a lot on this album. Um I guess that's what like Cambridge was kind of struggling with was yeah songs like this and and there are song like there are songs on this album that that change time signatures like midway so it yeah it's that I I think that's why maybe Woody was the best choice yeah for it just a, a better 
a better musician. Um, I think my favorite part of the song is when the first kind of guitar solo or instrumental break uh, ends and then it, it kind of climaxes and then goes into that spoken word part where he talks mm-hmm. about, you know, the society hiding its organic minds and cellars or whatever, which is a very, very interesting, uh, very interesting kind of philosophy that he had that I think that people who were maybe considered quote unquote mad, uh, were actually maybe not mad and that they were just free minded and that we were you know, oppressing them by just locking them away. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, like, well, this is another one of those empathetic tunes, right? A song where Bowie sides with, you know, the social misfits. Last time around, on the last record, you know, it was the, the poor old lady caught stealing and God knows I'm good. The misunderstood wild-eyed boy from Free Cloud. The record before that, we had the silly boy Blue who, who couldn't fit into this blissful Tibetan society. Yeah. And this time around... It's the ones living in the insane asylums, a.k.a. all the madmen. Yeah. And, and he concludes that he'd rather be with them, you know? Because he's quite content they're all as sane as me. So yeah, yeah. He thinks the world has gone crazy, and the last sane ones remaining on an otherwise dysfunctional planet are the very ones we labeled and ostracized. That's just so cool. Like, <laughs> what a great concept. Well, in, in one of uh, Chris O'Leary's books, he mentions R.D. Lang, who was a psychiatrist in the mid-60s who believed it was possible that a, a schizophrenic person was, in fact, the most sane person of an insane society. And that, you know, quote-unquote regular people like us just labels, label them as nuts, but being crazy is actually just a special strategy that a person invents to live in an unlivable situation. Right, yeah. Like, oh, they got you. I'm still free. Yeah. You're 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 a robot like everybody else or whatever. And yeah, I, yeah, that makes sense. Um I, I also love how this song picks up after that spoken word part right away, uh, with that really cool kind of pick scratch that Ronson does that sounds like it's shooting back into the core or into the verse. Mm-hmm. Um and then it gets kind of heavier. The percussion starts going crazy, uh, right before the uh here I stand foot in hand part. There's I don't know what that he's uh, Woody's just hitting the cymbals. Uh, Ralph Mace comes in with the synthesizer, and it just the way it just sweeps in once and then sweeps in even heavier a second time. Um, I can't help but wonder what it would have sounded with a full orchestra, but I think having the synth do it is it's cool. It's unique. it's it's a bit different. Don't 
obvious thread here to his own or to David's own personal life would obviously, you know, be the fact that, like you mentioned, his brother Terry was a, a patient at Cane Hill Asylum, a, a voluntary patient, but a patient nonetheless. Uh, Bowie has this quote from around the time the song was released where he says, The majority of people in my family have been in some kind of mental institution. As for my brother, he doesn't want to leave. He likes it very much. He'd be happy to spend the rest of his life there, mainly because most of the people are, are on the same wavelength as him. So he's really kind of seen things from their perspective, right? And when he puts those lenses on, it's like, well, shit, like, they've created this alternate universe for themselves to cope with the fact that the real one is hell on earth. It's brilliant. Yeah. He mentions lobotomy near the end of the song, too, and, you know, he had that aunt that we mentioned earlier who had uh, manic depressive psychosis, who had a lobotomy performed right. on yeah. her. And once again, like, that must be so frightening. You know, anytime he references fear on this record, I can't help but imagine him going, you know, I had three ants with schizophrenia, some so severe that they were lobotomized, and then there's my half-brother Terry. And so he's trying to avoid the threat of what he believed was, maybe not even a threat, but his own inevitable insanity. I think he truly believed and was truly scared that he was going to go mad, and so... These characters he writes about and these alter egos he would soon develop, they have to be some form or some sort of escapist writing method. Yeah, he, he mentions a lot of um, he, he mentions a lot of the drugs that they were possibly being given. Uh, he mentions electroshock therapy. Like I, EST I, is three. Yeah, know. he's you know he's yeah he's he's scared that this is going to become maybe the rest of his life if it, like he could suffer the same fate as they could. Yeah. I wonder when he kind of got over it or if he ever got over it or like the, the fear, like the, you know, the certain, like the fear that he was experiencing on a possibly day to day basis. Well, that's during the what, writing of this album. Like the, all those alter egos he had in the seventies. I, I kind of look at that as that was kind of like his, his split personality. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, they were kind of like, uh, I think he used it as, you know, he, he built his character so that if anything happened to him at that time, well, it was happening to that character. Like he said, like yeah. what happened to Ziggy was happening to Ziggy. He went insane, not me. So Aladdin saying is Ziggy going insane, not yeah. David Jones going insane. The thin white Duke was maybe the one who was on Coke for three years, not, not David yeah. Bowie. Uh, but then when he gets to Berlin, well, I'm David Bowie again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, this is my favorite song on the album, I think. Oh, yeah, um, that's that's a good. I haven't. I actually haven't thought about what mine is, but I mean, this is a. Maybe it would be in consideration at the very least. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of my favorite Bowie songs. Um, I'm not sure how much he did it live at the time. He may not have. Um, I know he did it on the Glass Spider tour, which we will touch on when we when we get to that episode. Um, mm-hmm. I know we, we may have a guest on for that episode who has a story about that. Um, anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm done with uh, with all the Mad Men, if you are. Well, the last thing I, I would like to just touch on is how uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road is referenced in the course of this song. Okay. That's a 1950s novel that uh, Terry gave a copy of to David. There's a specific passage that David obviously drew inspiration from that says, The only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved... Uh, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. 
So this is a great example of Bowie drawing inspiration from literature, but but actually putting his own twist to it. You know, he wasn't really doing that as often on the first record. He would kind of just take a take an idea and almost copy it verbatim. Right. Well, I know he he had mentioned uh, for a couple other songs on this album, it might be a better time to touch on it, but he did say that he often took um, inspiration from the books he'd read or he would take the information he was getting from these books that he was reading, a lot of philosophical stuff, um, and he would try to interpret it in his own words so that he could understand it. And I think maybe that's what he was doing a little bit of there. Um, I I know he does it a bit on the Superman um, with, uh, with Nietzsche. Yeah, he didn't really quite understand him. Yeah, so he just kind of did the Coles Notes version, but yeah. his own Coles Notes version of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I read somewhere that he he was the kind of guy who he would maybe bullshit a little bit about it, but then he would go and do his homework on it instead of just somebody yeah, read, I, re- reading the synopsis and then just bullshitting and not ever really figuring it out. Yeah. Um, but I think he said he, he was trying to understand it or pretending to understand that kind of stuff. One last thing that I was uh, I was reading Nick Pegg's book, and I thought this was really interesting, is that uh, this is something that you usually do more of. I was surprised that you actually didn't point this out, but uh, he pointed out that the guitar outro to this song, you know, that do-do-do-do-do-do-do, yeah. that's uh, copied by Visconti in string form on T-Rex's Cosmic Dancer. Oh, and I love that song. We could put that in here. Yeah. And then again by Ronson in five years, also in string form. So yeah, I mean it's not the most. Com- it's just kind of do 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 do. It's not the most uh, complex thing ever, but it's got a, a nice up and down melody, and it will get recycled uh, by Bowie and, and some of his peers for uh, in the next few years. Okay, so uh, track three. Side A is Black Country Rock, um, a masculine song uh, in Bowie's words. Uh, he said he, he wrote it for Mick and Woody so that they can kind of rock out on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of, I guess, it was one of the later uh, additions to the album. I think they kind of wrote it in the studio like right before the end of uh, recording the album. And uh, it was, so yeah, it was kind of like a throwaway or like a filler, but they kind of make it, or Ronson, Visconti, and, and Woodmansey uh, definitely make it more than just your typical uh, rock and roll filler track. Mm-hmm. Um, this is another one where you can just tell this band is is tight, despite being such a yeah. young band. Well, this one, I know you had previously mentioned on either the last episode or the one before that the Spiders typically didn't have a lot of time to work on arrangements. Yeah, you know, that BBC performance Ronson was on for for example, like he played with Bowie for, for like literally two minutes. Or yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but Black Country Rock, it, it was a late addition uh, to the album, but it was actually just a tune that they'd kind of jammed and fooled around with for about two months. Probably at Haddon Hall. In yeah, space. in yeah. that, like, that they kind of had that, yeah, like that cram space under the, under the, the stairwell. Across, yeah, 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 yeah kind of like a little... Cellar or something. Yeah. yeah. Where, where Dracula's coffin was. So they were able to kind of flesh uh, ideas out on this one, and I think it does show, because it's kind of a simple rocker, but they really... They really expand on this, you know, this guitar, on these chords about as much as you could. Yeah. Um, Ronson's lead playing on this is 
it's great. It sounds mm-hmm. like it sounds like Jimmy Page. This, this is a very Zeppelin-y so, uh, song to me. Um, yeah, I, I I really really like Ronson's playing on it. It's uh, yeah, it, it's a basic you know blues rock song, but yeah, it's. It, it's good. I, I like Bowie's vocal. Uh, he kind of does, or he was definitely doing um, a Mark Bolan kind of impersonation. I think I read somewhere that that Ronson and 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 Woody would actually get kind of pissed off. Yeah. He, he would embell- over embellish it when they were playing it live, and they yeah, kind of look yeah. at each other like, "Fuck, here he goes again." Um, but yeah, it, I, it, I think it kind of fits with it. I, towards the end of the song, or maybe throughout the whole song, I definitely noticed it. My last uh, listen through. Um, after reading about it, that Visconti um, using some, I think he just adjusted the EQ. He made the Bowie's vocal sound thinner too. Very thin, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So it's it's kind of neat that he was playing around with with vocal treatments, um, which actually a really cool one, which we'll touch on a bit later in the episode. It was also kind of lazy of Bowie to do that Bowen thing because he, I, I read that he just kind of like ran out of lyrics. Yeah. So he was just like, oh, I don't know, I'll just do this fake Bowen thing. And then he also has that part where he says, you can leave my friend. And he says it in a really weird voice. He's running out of words. So he's like, well, I'll just say the same ones over and over again, but I'll just say them in these sort of weird voices. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned Bowie being lazy on this album. Visconti may have taken that... Uh, to heart a little bit because he had said that he thought that Bowie wasn't very enthusiastic mm-hmm. um, in the writing process of this song. There, like you said, there was a bit of, a little bit of, you know, maybe not arguing, but they were, he, they contested how much Bowie contributed to some of these songs. This may yeah. be one of them. Um, I, I actually read that Visconti said that during the writing of, oh, I can't remember exactly what song it was, but yeah, during this album, They'd be working on on a on a song. They'd be jamming in the studio, and Bowie would be outside in the lobby holding hands with Angie. Yeah, and kind of like, okay, Bowie, we need you now. We're working on your album. Uh, can you come and write some lyrics for this song? Yeah. And, then, and then you know he'd come in and, and do it, which and you know it'd be great. And he'd do a couple vocal takes that were flawless and incredible. And that's kind of the magic of Bowie. But it, it maybe rubbed Visconti the, the wrong way. I mean, he left for a reason after this album. I mean, because they were making great music, so it wasn't the fact that they were in a rut or anything like that. But I think the rest of the Spiders kind of side with Visconti, too. They, they definitely, like Woody and Mick, back him up. But Ralph Mace was a bit more diplomatic. He kind of went, well, it was a, it's a little bit more of a collaborative effort than those guys were giving Bowie credit for, and Bowie kind of underplayed it, or... Yeah, he he kind of downplayed it and made right. it like no, I did everything. I think the truth ultimately lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah, well, and that's kind of just the way that Bowie worked throughout his entire career. Is he, it, it was his show. Mm-hmm. It was there were his songs. He was the one singing them. They were his lyrics. Um, I mean, the chord structures were usually brought in by him. Yeah, um, there were some jam tracks, probably more on this album than others, and that's why this one's, you know, the one that's in the forefront when they talk about that mm-hmm. when they're challenging it a little bit but it was his show he, he relied on his you know his ensemble cast of uh, collaborators throughout his career to kind of carry him to that next level but there's an art to that I think finding the right players allowing them to be uh, the best uh, versions of themselves to benefit the total outcome of the music I think that that's where Bowie. I think he did that better than anybody mm-hmm. in the history of music. I, that's you know, there's a bold take maybe, but 
he was able to, you know, put like, and guys would want to work with him and, and girls would want to work with him, uh, to make the best music that they could. They didn't care that they weren't the ones on the top of the bill or they weren't the ones, you know, with songwriting credits. They were just, mm-hmm. I think, proud and happy to be making music with, you know, one of the greatest songwriters of all time. This is definitely one where Bowie utilizes the backing band a lot. I, I used to kind of think like, well, you know, maybe this track could have been better if Bowie didn't just have like two lines in the verse and yeah. then the chorus, it's the, and it's the same verse. If he didn't just add the vocals at literally the very last minute, maybe this song could have been something more special. But what we get isn't too bad. You know, this certainly isn't a skippable song. Uh, just maybe one of the least memorable you know, I was kind of thinking, like, what if you took Signet Committee's lyrics and slapped them onto a track with the musicianship as elaborate as on this song? Yeah. Between the two songs, you know, you mix them together and you might have one of, like, the greatest songs of all time. But at the end of the day, I think, I do think there's a time and place for those sorts of aspirations. And black country rock isn't really one of them. Yeah. The sparse lyrics allow the things that were meant to shine, shine. And that's that fantastic, bluesy, psychedelic arrangement that the Spiders whipped up. So I think really the end result was, you know, it, it was very good. And, th- and this is this song is is still a very good song. Just when you pin it up to, like, you know, all the Mad Men and the Width of the Circle, it doesn't quite hold up maybe, but it's still a, still a very good song. Absolutely. Should we head to, uh, to what, Dreamland? Kind of a lullaby coming up next. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> We're talking about uh, after all, uh, the last song on the on the side. Lullaby at like Dracula's house. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's it's very very uh, haunting. This one, uh, and it is kind of like a lullaby. I, Bowie was good at writing lullabies. Would you consider Kooks a lullaby? Kind of. I mean, it's Definitely, he's singing yeah. it to his son. Um, Ashes to Ashes is kind of lullaby. Uh, maybe even Little Wonder a little bit. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a few kind of lullabies that he he's written um, throughout his career. This is a freaky one um this one makes me think of like horror movies where there's like a like a possessed child and they're like this is the music they play while he's walking down a hallway or something i I don't know it's it's really really eerie um yeah there's there's a lot of space on this one uh it's very acoustic-y uh but there's also kind of a lot happening um on it there's multiple basses uh, mm-hmm. There's stylophone, the synth is playing. There might be, even be a recorder on it. Um, and I thought it was a mandolin for the longest time uh, being played with the with the chords, like along with the acoustic guitar. But it's actually Ronson uh, playing, like a 12-string is very similar to a mandolin because a mandolin's like eight strings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, they're, they're like four with two, like they're, they're doubled. So there's like a, there's a D or a G, D, A, E, but there's just two of each. So it kind of a 12 string is, is kind of similar to that where you, you can get the same kind of effect on it. Anyway, um, yeah, it all just kind of adds to the ambience of this track. It's, it's a very, very uh, kind of dreary, uh, sounds like it could be like a circus song. Um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of horrifying. Uh, yeah. And I like it. It, it would have been cool on a 45. Uh, a side, there is a happy land, and then B side, this, you know dream yeah. and nightmare right there is a happy yeah. land we we've discussed at length uh we're gonna I, is, yeah every album we're gonna find a connection yeah. to there's a happy land i'm determined you know and it 
you know, Cole's Notes version, it's this great little tune about the innocence of childhood. Yeah. And, and this song is not too, not too different, you know. It's telling us that even as adults, we're still children at heart. You know, won't someone invite them? They're just taller children. That's all after all. But this song has a bit more of a darker twist, doesn't it? You know, Bowie was, he was increasingly fascinated with uh, Satanist slash occultist Aleister Crowley. Which is also kind of interesting, though, because, you know, you hear that he was into the work of a Satanist, and you think, oh, wow, you know, he was really messed up in this period. But when you actually look into the ideas and the, the tenets of Satanism, it's actually pretty reasonable. Like, if you ever take some time to research it, I think you'd actually be shocked to learn that it's not what the world tries to tell us it is. They don't really worship Satan. They're mostly atheists. And just based on the little I know, it's a religion that encourages, like, tolerance and individuality and respect individuality is definitely what Crowley was after Bowie too I think after you know the hippie movement sort of left that sour taste in his mouth and so like you know do what thou wilt is a line in this song and that refers to Crowley's work his like big catchphrase was do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law yeah meaning that you know adherence of well I guess his religion or what do you want to call it was like Thelema or Telema or something the adherence of that religion, what they should be doing is seeking out and following their true path, i.e. find or determine their true will, which in layman's terms is finding grand destiny in life uh, or as a a moment-to-moment path of action that operates in perfect harmony with nature. You know, to, to, it sort of frees human from, you know, the rules and confines of society the, the, and then it opens them up to a fully spiritual experience. You know, so it's kind of like nonconformist. It doesn't really matter if society accepts it. If it's your true will, it's correct. There isn't a universal correctness, only a personal correctness, which I suppose becomes a slippery slope because there's potential for like a bending of the moral code. And maybe that's where things start to get a little uglier. But I think it ties in nicely to a song like After All because... Children are very much humans in arguably their purest form. They don't understand adult concepts quite yet because it hasn't been drilled into them. They really only operate based off of natural instincts. So by the time you're an adult, you're still a child at heart, or in Bowie's terms, you're just a taller child. That part of you is still you. You've just grown out of it. And I believe the point is that you've grown out of it arbitrarily. You've just conformed to societal norms that may or may not be necessary, but you've just accepted them because it's been taught to you. It seems natural, but, you know, it's very artificial. And and so straying away from that sort of becomes a spiritual experience in its purest form. Well, and I I see parallels with with that ideology to to all the madmen where he's saying that all these adult minds have conformed to Mm -hmm. the norm. As where children are very free, yeah. Or as where um, the children of the madmen kind of now, right? Like, right, yeah. You're you're not, yeah. He's he's saying they you, you get, may not be mad, or you just may still have those childlike, or what is considered if you're an adult who still thinks like that. You're, you're yeah. I mean, this is really getting deep into some <laughs> psychoanalyzing. Uh, you know, like what Bo, where Bowie was at, but I mean, we we do like the the facts are we do know that he was into Crowley. We we have the songs, we have the lyrics, mm-hmm. we can decipher them however we want. Um, but I mean, all you know, all paths kind of lead to this is where Bowie's head was at, which is just 
it's deeper. It's it's off. It's way out in left field in terms of popular music and where the lyrics are at at the time. Like yeah, you know, we're not far away from you know. I want to hold your hand at this <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and yeah, this is this is where Bowie's at. It's 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 pretty. It, it gets heavy. It's a lot to take in. Um, I I've struggled trying to figure out what this song is is about without you know having to read about what Bowie was thinking mm-hmm. or what he was he what he was reading at the time. Um, I've always just kind of thought of it as yeah, there's some. It's a freaky song. Um, the line at the end of the song, um, oh, what is it? It's uh, forget all I've said. Please bear me no ill. Um, it's kind of like, look, I've, I've laid this all out for you, but, and then at the end, he's kind of taking it back and saying, you know, forget all of that. It, it almost reminds me of, you know, where there's like an, a, like an older kid with a bunch of smaller kids or maybe even an adult with a bunch of, of kids. And he's telling like a ghost story or he's telling like, you know, he, he's, he's explaining something to them. And then at the end they're like, is it real? Like, is that really? And he's like, Oh no, that's all fake. Yeah, that's yeah. urban legend or something. I get that kind of feel from it, uh, and that's kind of eerie to me. Where he's he's explaining all this stuff to you, and then he's taking it back, like, "Oh, you might not be able to, you might not want to understand what I'm saying because you might not want to be in the same headspace as me." And that's kind of what I've always <laughs> taken from it. Um, and and the opening line is is great too. Uh, Please trip them gently; they don't like to fall. It's kind of like, look these like what well, maybe the children are still innocent and they're still pure um they're not going to handle what's coming very well so bring it on yeah. gently well i i just love that he was so nonconformist and that he was always you know looking at breaking the rules that society's taught us you know one thing just in regular day-to-day life would be like, I don't know, like the nine to five work shift, right? And 40 hours a week. And it's like, yeah, it's standard, but like, why? You know, why did we arrive at that number? Does it make sense to us because we think it makes sense? Or have we just accepted it because we have no choice? Uh, so, and, and, you know, like all these people in the, the sort of Crowley camp, you know, they strive to ascend to higher states of existence that go beyond what we know, you know, uh, uniting oneself with higher powers and, understanding and embracing their true will or their ultimate purpose and, and place in life, which they kind of view as impossible with, you know, the world as we know it. And David's, uh, there's, there's Eastern spiritualism scattered in here too. Like his Buddhist beliefs come out when he says, the rebirth. Like, yeah, live, live your rebirth, rebirth and, and do what you will. Yeah. You know, rebirth and the overself and all that stuff we've, we've discussed at, at length on previous episodes as well. Oh, by Jingo is a, or, yeah, we'll yeah, well, that that central refrain, "Oh by Jingo," yeah, that's it, it has roots apparently as far back as like the 17th century, yeah, and I it read has that. something to do with Jesus or something. I think Jingo I, is yeah, Jesus. I don't know what it means really, and I haven't looked into it too much. I just think of it as like this creepy, ominous chant that lets you know something is afoot, kind of like there's a gang of weird people chanting something. One, two, Freddy's yeah, coming for I, you. It's kind of got yeah. I, I feel that when like I, I can't really understand kids on swings with heads, you know, turning around or something. And it's you don't really you can't really understand what they're here to do, but it's like it's something not good. You know? like, yeah, trouble is afoot. Yeah, it, don't play this one home alone, you know, right before bed. It might freak you out a little bit. I, I'd run up from the basement to my bed if I was the last song I listened to on the side. Uh, but it is the last song on the side. Um, 
some it, it is kind of a, a well not a downer well yeah it is kind of a downer um interesting way to end a side um mm-hmm. but intriguing nonetheless what i love about this song is how it's just so different and not just from the rest of this record but from the rest of like pretty much everything <laughs> like it's such a unique atmosphere and i think the credit there has to be given to the band most notably visconti and ronson Visconti is playing, I think you had mentioned, was it four different basses or something on this song? A double bass. He may even have a stand-up bass, regular bass. Yeah, there's he, a lot. He also yeah. plays the recorder. Ronson, like you mentioned, is playing the, um, the mandolin. Or a 12-string or, or the, similar the, the, the to The 12-string yeah. similar to the mandolin. It sounds like a mandolin to me, too. Yeah. Uh, the stylophone uh, makes a return here, too, after being used on uh, Space Oddity. And there's that trippy circus passage. Yeah, oh, I love that. And that that, that chant that we mentioned, you know. That's where the bass is really thumping, and there's, I, I feel like there's got to be a stand-up bass in that part. I think that's where it is, yeah. in that part, yeah. And it's just, uh, you know, all of these ingredients just sort of mixed together just makes for such a weird, uh, unsettling, and but almost oddly, like, peaceful atmosphere. It's really hard to try to figure out what to make of this song, Uh but it's just a, it's a very different atmosphere. Now, this isn't a set of instruments you normally see stacked on top of each other. And it's also a very somber song, uh, which is kind of odd, too, because you hear all these ingredients, and if I just listed them off to you, you'd think, oh, this must be, like, a, a noisy mess, but you know, it's far from it. Yeah. It's, it's also, like, a very, like, gothic soundscape. You know, I can see how a group like The Cure, you know, Robert Smith, I can see how... You know, a, a track like this is sort of like pioneering the, the direction that a group like that would wind up going down. Uh, you know, it, it just definitely sticks out in stark contrast musically. It, it's a waltz and uh, a bit more of a psychedelic number, too, with those trippy carousel bits. Yeah. But it certainly still fits into the man who sold the world landscape because it sort of has that paranoia and isolation kind of vibes uh, hanging over it all. I wonder... Like, this one definitely would have been part of the acoustic side had they done... They, they originally planned to do the, this album, mm-hmm. like, kind of like bringing it all back home uh, by yeah. Dylan, yeah. where half was acoustic. I'm not... Was it, like, the first half and then the second half, or... First I don't know. half was electric, second half was acoustic on that record. On that, And yeah. they were planning on doing that here. Yeah, I... This and Width of a Circle, I think, were the two. There's another one, well, maybe. thank God Width of a Circle wasn't done uh, acoustic. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... I mean, it, it would have been... Fine, I'm sure, but I think he was really serious about that idea too, because on that BBC performance, I think the one that we were uh, mentioning, like in February 1970, yeah. this, they started recording this in April 1970. Yeah. yeah, that performance is half Bowie by himself, kind of on acoustic, yeah. and then it kind of gets more. Yeah. yeah, so he he really was thinking about going through with that, but I think he kind of came to his senses once they got these songs together and they kind of made up more of a proper album. But I feel like if they wouldn't have used electric guitars, they or and other instruments, they they would have maybe you know how uh street fighting man is actually all acoustic guitars mm-hmm. they just freaking blared it and they just yeah there's a lot of clipping going on with mm-hmm. uh with the recording and they just yeah i feel like it would have ended up sounding very very heavy electric kind of like street fighting man they would have yeah. had to because it would have or maybe that's just why they scrapped it it just it didn't work or it was so much better the way it is and this one included like um mm-hmm. yeah it's it needs all those instruments you can't really create that kind of an atmosphere with just you know a couple you know the guitar and drum yeah. like it really needed all of those parts mixed in and uh 
Yeah, like I said, it's not only is it different from everything on this album, it's different from anything else Bowie's really ever recorded, and it's different from anything that anybody's ever really recorded. Well, so, and his vocal on it is very eerie too. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's very like his vocal's very gentle, uh, as he says, <laughs> trip them gently. But it, it's very, uh, it's hard to really just like I, what would you call it? He's kind of. He's like uh, warning, he's be, warning. Yeah, be, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. He's he's warning you, like, oh, yeah. It's just, you know, it's yeah. like a, you know, he's expecting him to break into that at at, at some point. But yeah, <laughs> just a really different song. I mean, check this song out. Check this side out. Check this album out because it's it's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, that's that's it for side A. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, we're gonna be coming back next week or shortly after this uh, one's released with side B of The Man Who Sold the World. Uh, Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse. And I'm John. See you next time.